But um, anyway, we're looking at uh, evolution because uh, it's obviously an important question in terms of what we do with Genesis, Adam and Eve, origins. Uh, if we just evolved from monkeys, are we really even special at all? Uh, are we just a product of nature? Uh, many atheists will say that evolution is a kind of, um, it's kind of the black box, you know, to understanding, you know, to answering all the questions of how life came to be. Really, that's not true. Evolution does not answer the origin questions, but uh, how the diversity of the biodiversity came to be, so on and so forth. So it's something that Christians, you know, want to come to terms with. And we've talked about how there are, there are different, you know, sort of, there are sort of five main views at the one extreme, if you will, would be young earth creationism. The earth is 16,000 years old, uh, that, that, Genesis describes, you know, six 24-hour days and so on and so forth. And, and everything happened exactly like it says in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, at the other end would be an unguided evolutionary process. So there's really no explan explanation for origins. There's no need to explain for Adam and Eve. People are a result, all human life actually, is a result of this evolutionary process. And uh, then you've got things like old earth creationism, which says the universe is old, but God intervened at points in times. Uh, with specific creation acts. And then this author argues for essentially a, a guided evolution. Uh, I think I'm, I might be forgetting a layer in there. But anyway, his argument is that evolution is real, that the earth is old. Uh, so then the question is kind of what do you do with Adam and Eve? And that's kind of what we, we look at today a little bit. So this chapter <laughs> is on human evolution. And he goes into a quite a bit of scientific uh, information that I'm not, I, I wouldn't be even able to, to read it back. But let me say this. He begins by wanting to find common ground when it comes to uh, theological truths, that even though he holds to an evolutionary point of view, old earth, you know, and all of that, he says this, Despite the volatility of human origins, four theological truths unite all Christians, and I'm on page 122. First and foremost, God created humanity. We're not a mistake or merely an evolutionary byproduct of blind chance. <clears throat> it was the Lord's plan to make people. Second, humans have been created in the, in the image of God. We're the only creatures that enjoy such a privileged status. The spiritual truth stands... This spiritual truth stands in sharp contrast to the atheistic belief that we are nothing but animals, and it commands us to respect both others and ourselves. Third, every man and woman is a sinner. We've rebelled against our creator, sinned against other humans, even violated the creation. And then finally, only Jesus offers redemption from sin. Okay, so um, God created us. Um, you know, we are created in the image of God. We fell into sin and that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now, the question is, how does he hold those views sort of on his evolutionary framework? That's where critics of his would, would come back. Um, let me skip ahead a little bit. So he talks about scientific experiment, or I'm sorry, ex evidence um, for uh, evolution being kind of a fact of science. So he says, for example, that this is something that pretty much every uh, biologist affirms. He says the nearest living evolutionary relative, relatives of humans are the higher primates, monkeys, lesser apes, and great apes. Their basic anatomy closely resembles ours. And he gives some, um, he gives some examples, you know, skeletal examples of rib cages and such. 
Now, I'm, I'd be curious to know what Daniel and Lisa think about this. One of the pieces of evidence he uses uh, for uh, as a kind of um, um, in-between figure is called Lucy. Has anyone ever heard of Lucy? Oh, okay. So um, Lucy's, though, now maybe more by young earth creationists, Lucy is disputed. Some people hold that Lucy is a fact, a, you know, kind of the um, in-between or... Um, the fossil that sort of proves evolution, if you will. Uh, other people say that Lucy is, uh, for example, we did a, a radio show or a podcast about four or five months ago on evolution. And um, Ted Wright, who was on, he was arguing against Lucy being a, a good sample, that Lucy is probably a human being. Uh, and also the, they, they found a lot of bones in an area, but they weren't all together. Like Lucy is not one skeleton that they found like intact, but rather they found a lot of bones that were sort of put together that maybe should not have. So I don't know if Daniel and Lisa have ever know a lot about Lucy or if they would think Lucy is a good, um, good piece of evidence to use or not, you know? So, so Westview, there was a few years ago, Westview did its apologetics um, series and there was someone uh, basically disputing evolution and brought up Lucy, yeah, basically questioned the sample collection of Lucy. Um, but he, he did a lot of cherry picking. And so kind of like, if you're just going to hang your hat on, you know, that like maybe they found fossils from a couple different sites, you know, like there's, there's the point is that there's a lot of other evidence. So, yeah, yeah, when I when I talk to people, they, it doesn't all hinge on Lucy, um, but he kind of he made scientists out to be like his bad people who were trying to, you know, or something. The evidence. And I don't think it was that malicious. You know, I think it wasn't. Um, so I I don't know I don't know the full, you know, like how they collected the evidence, but yeah. I could find. Yeah, Steve was going to say something. They found remains older than Lucy. Yeah. The bog man. This is a, you can't quite see this, I know, but this is a chimpanzee <laughs> ribcage, Lucy's ribcage, and human. And it sort of goes from more triangular to, to, I don't know, more cylindrical, which is what our ribcage is. So th these, are, these are sort of pieces of evidence that he uses. Let me ask you a question about the DNA. Um, one of the things that people will say is that, uh, might as well just read it, <clears throat> that of course we have high degrees of DNA in common with, um, by the way, I did 23andMe for Amanda for Christmas. And y'all, for, for those of you who are Facebook friends with her, you, you know, but her father was adopted and we, and within a day, she found out who her grandmother was. Just pretty amazing. Yeah. So um, I told her, of course, she can never commit any crimes where she leaves DNA evidence behind. Control, you know, she's in big trouble. But, it, but you know, that, that, that is really fascinating that her dad, kind of wanted to know for all these years and did make efforts to find out who his birth mother was, but couldn't. But, you know, basically in one day of getting test results, you know, a few phone calls later, 
through 4.637% DNA in common. This person over here might be your first cousin. And uh, you can connect with them through 23andMe. And Now, we did do um, Ancestry as well. Because I like to stick it to these people, you know. I mean, I'm like, you know, apparently uh, Amanda is like 0.5% Pakistani. I don't see it. So Amanda's I want to know if Ancestry right. says the same. Nothing against no, Pakistanis. No yeah, but if she's not, uh, <laughs> I'm not going there. Yeah. Well, she's 0.5% African as well. So, yeah, yeah. Well, but it kind of relates to this, you know, if, yeah, but anyway. Mm -hmm. The bigger the sample size, her numbers will change, right? Like, because as, as they get more information, then they'll more, more, I be able to identify her, her DNA, you know, so. Right, right. So I think, for example, you know, the myth in America is that someone has a like a Native American great grandfather or whatever the case is. You know, my, my dad was like certain. You know, we, we, you know, we heard the stories, too. Like nothing. Now, now that said, uh, Native Americans tend not to participate in things like that. Uh, so we're, we, we're not getting, um, you know, do you need something? Oh. Yeah. Anyway, but <laughs> this is this is of course way 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 beyond any expertise of mine. So I want the DNA experts to maybe help me out. Oh yeah, go ahead. Um, you were just saying that the DNA of uh, a primate is very close to the human. Uh -huh. I like to point out that the pig is also very 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 close. Yeah. So I can make an argument that pig. So, and that's, that's my argument is that, let me just read what he says and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back on that. He says, genetic evidence demonstrates that humans are related to other higher primates. Uh, just as the genes of immediate family members are more similar to one another than to those of distant relatives, science has discovered striking genetic similarities between our living evolutionary relatives and us. And he says that m monkeys are distantly related 93%. Chimpanzees are our closest cousins at 99%. But then he says it's necessary to emphasize that we did not descend from either of these primates, right? So that's, we, we say, we kind of casually say we descended from monkeys, but actually we did not because um, monkeys wouldn't exist anymore, I guess, if we did. Um, we descended from something like chimpanzees or monkeys and we became what they were. And these things are closely related to us. I mean, I think we have something like 60% of the same DNA as a, a housefly too. You know what I mean? Now, granted that 99 is, means more than 60. But my question is, in the, when you have certain building blocks of life that you're going to have, that you're going to, you're going to have to share a certain amount of DNA to, for example, have, I don't know, our bone structure. It would make sense. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're related. Right. I mean, isn't is that like the difference between causation and correlation? So, yeah, we have a lot of DNA in common, but it, does that prove ancestry or does it just prove that things like us, pigs or whatever else, um, or monkeys or chimpanzees <laughs> necessarily have to have the same? In other words, let's say that and I promise I'll be quiet after this, Daniel and Lisa, because I want them to come in on this. Okay. But let's say that God 
that 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 the six that the that the older that the young earth creationist position is right that God created every species on its own, and let's let's just say that God created chimpanzees and God created humans. Okay, that there is no evolution, there's no connection between them or something like a chimpanzee. Okay, but let's say that God's way of creating through the use of DNA necessarily means that we would have 99% of our DNA in common, right? That's possible, right? As a thought experiment, that's possible, right? We need that DNA to be similar species, but it doesn't mean that we're, that we're of common descent. So Lisa and Daniel, I don't know if y'all have any thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. so really it's about the comparisons you make. I feel like I'm echoing. Does it sound okay? You're not echoing on our end. Okay, that's good. So a good example he brings up, I mean, you're right that we have this, we have the same, a lot of similar DNA because our functions, you know, the functions that we need are the same. But if you look at page 127, page 5, he talks a lot about like a common ancestor. So if you look at figure six five, the top right, chimpanzees and humans, and then six million years ago, that split happens. So that's our last common ancestor. Okay. So if you you know look at genomes of humans and chimpanzees, you could compare them to gorillas, orangutans, you know other non-human primates. Like he talks about pseudogene content, and so. Six million years ago, before, or I guess maybe 10 million years ago, you know, humans lost the ability to make our own vitamin D. And chimpanzees have that same gene, but no one else does. Mm. And so it's not just that, you know, God created, I mean, yes, you know, evolutionary creators believe that God did create this in his ordained, you know, purpose-driven fashion, but it's not just that he created them to be so similar. It is this progression of, um, you know, like you, can, you can see it in the genome, how the genomes change. So, yeah. you know, gorillas, orangutans, monkeys, they can all make their own vitamins, but chimpanzees and humans have to get that from their diet, like from their microbiome, you know, um, from other places. And so there's a lot of examples like that, you know, pseudogene content that he talked about that show how over time people who are, um, um, you know, people who are related have lost some of these same functions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when he started talking about pseudogenes, I got a little bit lost, but yeah, all, let me. pseudogene, so, you know, genes include proteins, but every now and then we'll get this, in a sense, a mutation in these genes that results in the protein not being functional. So in other words, it's not just that we have DNA in common, but that we can look through the, the genome and we can say, you can, you can say, well, in our, in human genes, we say we have these remnants of genes that don't work anymore. And we only see that in say, um, chimpanzees. Right. Where that last okay. common sister is exactly. And you know, the gotcha. 23 and me, a lot of that works by you know, they an analyzing what are called SNPs, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And these are single letter differences in the genetic code, but you know that some people have, like for the BRCA breast cancer gene, mm. they have 
these single mutations. <coughs> you can, you know, compare them to other genomes. Yeah. What this, this, sorry, this chart is really small as it is, but what it shows is that you have monkey, gibbon, orangutan, gorilla, chimpanzee, human. So you're moving this way in time, going from monkey to human. And he's saying 30 years ago, there was a split. And so you have these splits. And as you get closer and closer to human, the, the, the genes get closer and closer together. So it's not just the argument, I think, is if I, if I understand it correctly, it's not just that the DNA or whatever is because there are different ways to find information or whatever, get, inf get information from DNA. But the, the genes themselves are getting closer and closer and closer in similarities in terms of what genes are shared between, say, chimpanzees <laughs> and humans. So um, he let me I'll, let me just go go on a little bit because I do want to get to the, the question of Adam and Eve. Um, he talks yeah, about the, I was going to add to yeah. We should emphasize, he does say, you know, humans are special, right? Like when you talk about yeah. a conscience or, so he made that distinction. But yes, maybe we're derived, you know, we have these common, last common ancestors from chimpanzees, but uh, humans are unique, we're special, and we're made and created in God's image is what he gets to. Yeah. Um, so he talks about Lucy, again, I've kind of, we've talked about that, <laughs> um, he starts talking about when, I guess, certain species began to get certain names. For example, Homo habilis on page 131, he says, was around four and a half feet tall, had a brain volume of 500 to 750. That's your cranium measurements, cc's. Homo erectus was more similar to humans from the neck down, five and a half feet tall, brain volume nearly that of ours today. This was the first pre-human to leave Africa, for example. Um, Archaeological evidence reveals that Homo erectus developed sophisticated tools like spears and hand axes, controlled fire and cooked with it, and constructed primitive shelters. Our species, Homo sapiens, is the last to appear in the fossil record, uh, emerged in Southeast Africa about 200,000 years ago. They moved into Mediterranean regions 100,000 years ago. However, around 50,000 years ago, behavior, behaviorally, modern humans arose in Africa. Archaeology reveals a dramatic change in the innovation and sophistication of their artifacts. And this will be a, something of a similar argument, not 50,000 years ago, but, but closer to that, that the second book we're going to look at makes as well, that you actually do see historical changes. And his argument is that after the fall into sin, you see dramatic changes in human behavior, warfare in particular. Um, so... I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I know I'm going over things too fast, Dan and Lisa. So y'all, please let me know. Um, he he does argue, like page 134. I'm looking at now that that we are much more than flesh. So he's he does want to make the case that even though he affirms evolution, okay, that human beings are more than flesh. He says, for example, um, science reveals that we share 99% of our genes with chimps. In other words, he says, the Lord has evolved a creature that in the flesh is nearly identical to us. But is there any doubt that we are radically different from chimpanzees? Has anyone ever read a novel or a book of poetry written by a chimp? Well, of course not. Um, are these behavioral differences between humans and chimpanzees accounted for by a 1% difference in genes? Hardly. According to evolutionary creation, a radical shift occurred along the evolutionary line 
that eventually led to us and our extraordinary achievements and disgraceful transgressions. So he's saying it's something more than that 1% of DNA that's different between us, that something else changed. And he emphasizes again and again that, that, you know, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The question is, when did that happen? So the, the young earth position is always going to have the advantage of certainty. This is when things were created. Adam and Eve were the first persons. They fell into sin. Everyone that follows, uh, you know, follows suit. And the second book we're going to look at, which we've already hinted at strongly, but it, it also has a, a neat and tidy answer to these questions because it affirms evolution, but it also affirms the historic creation of Adam and Eve some six to 10,000 years ago, and then their interbreeding with people who are a product of evolution. And his answer basically is that, I mean, I'm summarizing here. He essentially argues that it's, it's a mystery either way, that we, don't, we <clears throat> do not know how and when exactly um, a human as distinct from our evolutionary ancestor became distinct in the sense that they recognized they were made in the image of God, they understood the nature of sin, et cetera. We have no idea when that happened. I mean, I think at best he could narrow it down to like a 10,000 year era or something. I don't even know that he does that. But well, he says, point, right. yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, just his point is that, that that's, not the, that's not what the Bible is trying to tell us about, right? Like there's a message, you know, God's message, message isn't trying to explain exactly how everything was created. And so, yeah, he uses that term gradual and mysterious manifestation. And so that's where this next book that we'll talk about, he actually ha has those thought hypotheses to explore those, you know, my mysteries. Yeah. And so he, he does an interesting um, comparison to, to human embryology. And his argument is that when does the image of God become present in an embryo? All right. Um, you know, you have uh, my children around. We haven't had the talk yet. Uh, <clears throat> you have sperm and egg uh, come together. And so it's a question like, well, does 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 the does the father give you half of God's image and the mother give you half of God's image? Is it when they fuse to become one new cell? Is that when the image of God? I mean, people ask this about the soul as well. When do human beings get souls? Um, you know, and then what do we do with ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages or any any number of of fertilized eggs that don't come to be, whether of uh, through nature or through our own choice, of course. Um, you know, and so. There, there's really, I would agree that there really is no way to answer that. I mean, he says, for example, well, you've got, here's a punctiliar event in the creation of human life. The fertilization, you know, sperm and egg come together, one new cell. By the way, at that point, they have all the DNA they will ever have. Uh, that human being has all the DNA. That's why I would say human life begins at, at fertilization, uh, conception, whatever word you want to use. People distinguish between those two things. But um, so then you have two cells. Well, that cell doubles, and then those cells double, and so on and so forth. That's how life continues. Eventually, you get to a heartbeat. Uh, there's a very minor heartbeat after about 20 days. Uh, you know, not a fully developed four aorta's heart, but you, you can sense uh, blood circulating through that, through that organism, that embryo. And then you get to brain activity. And so the argument is that, well, when, when does this image of God get into that person? 
Well, it's it's true that we can't really know that. We the Bible doesn't answer that question, so we have to make our best argument for for that. Um, and um, and so I think he's saying, well, if at the micro level we can't answer that question, then it's okay if we can't answer it at the macro level. Um, is that fair to say, Daniel Lisa? Was that a good summary? Yeah, he basically goes through three model so we, we talk a lot we, you know when we make hypotheses in science then at the end you kind of give a model like your best based on the evidence your best idea of how things work you know the mechanism and so he gives three basic models and says that for you know it could be um that god at, at one point just selected you know a single pair of individuals to kind of re you know represent adam adam and eve like to to give them his image it, or it could be a, um, what he says, punctilier polygenism. Um, so that's, that's on page 138. Uh -huh. He says that, you know, in that, in that sense, there could be many Adams and Eves. And then there's a gradual polygenism, which is that the image of God and human sinfulness were gradually and mysteriously manifested across many generations of involving, of evolving ancestors. So those are the three models he, he gives. Yeah. So in other words, there were people, God picked two and said, you're Adam and Eve. There, uh, <clears throat> or there are lots of Adam and Eve's that Adam and Eve represent a kind of type, if you will, an archetype even. Um, and then, but then over uh, the other is that over time, humans became to have this awareness, for example, of right and wrong or something to that effect. And uh, he says evolutionary creation embraces gradual polygenism. This approach to human spiritual origins is free from the assumption that the first chapters of the Bible feature scientific concordism. Remember, scientific concordism is the, is the idea that the Bible and science essentially agree. They concord that, that one, that the story that the Bible tells is also scientifically accurate. He disputes that or he rejects it wholeheartedly. Um, and his point is that, remember, that in the Bible, there is a message and an incident, and that the incident is spoken of to, 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 to tell about the message, I guess, uh, and that it, you can divorce those two things. Again, that's offensive to many Christians, but that, that, that's, that's his argument. Um, let, me, let me just say this. Um, yeah, please. Um, I find it interesting that people have a hard time accepting having avenues of people, mm -hmm. but are fully accepting that all of us are created by You see how it's the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. No, I. Um, it's impossible. And I don't know. Yeah. Um. Chris was saying that that it seems like it's it's odd that we would find it impossible to believe that we came from Adam and Eve, but uh, that it would be possible that we came from, say, Lucy and whoever Lucy's beau was at the time. Uh, I mean, not to not to mock it, but the the only thing I don't know about that is if they would say that all if Lucy is a common ancestor or just one piece of evidence that indicates that evolution took place in general, but. Yeah, like I said, there, there, there is mitochondrial Eve and chromosomal Adam, 
but we'll talk about that in the next book. Um, that was a hope for a lot of people. And that theory has been around for a long time. That was a hope for a lot of people that, oh, we can pin all of women back to having one mitochondrial DNA in common with one person back in 100,000 years ago. Same with chromosomes on the male side. And so, aha, here are Adam and Eve. And they could have overlapped and so on and so forth. And the, second, the author of the second book says that's not, that's not helpful. And he, he kind of debunks it quite quickly. But yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. 23 and me definitely says so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah we have neanderthal dna mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so maybe maybe adam and eve are the survivors of uh of um some sort of conflict at some point and they they ended up being the well actually again in the sec i keep refer referencing the second book um <laughs> i don't even remember the name of it uh anyway um by Joshua Swamidas, um, the genealogical Adam and Eve. So part, part of the point is that he, he actually argues that we all have a common ancestor as early as 4,000 years ago. That's a, that's a mathematical fact. Um, that's at least according to his arguments. And this, this, that argument's been around since 2004. And the first number they came back with, we actually have a common ancestor going back 700 years. But then they said, well, we should probably account for um, tribal movements or in, in, in remote islands and things like that. And so the further you push it back, the, the easier it is to have a common ancestor. But conservatively, we would have, for sure, all humans living today, today would have a common ancestor 6,000 years ago, for example. And so um, that's not even really, uh, that doesn't even need to be part of our uh, debate. I think, I think the, the, the debate is if, if we are and now I'm going to use loaded language. If we are only products of evolution, only is the, the de debated word, okay? Because he would say, we're not only products of evolution, we're product of guided evolution that, that are divinely guided. But if we, <laughs> if we are only products of evolution, then when did we become image bearers of God? So he, are, he says this, and, 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 and at the end of what he says, my question is, how do we know that? Exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. Okay. Page 140, right in the middle, he says this. He says, despite our creaturely limits of understanding fully their entrance into the world, we know that we are the only creatures who have been made in the creator's image. We are the only creatures who have sinned, and we are all in need of a savior. So he says these things, and of course, I agree with those things, and I think he believes those things. I just don't know how he knows those things. I don't, because I think at the end of the day, and I might be might be totally wrong on this, and this isn't this isn't a hill I die on, but it strikes me that 
he, there really are, he, he can't really have any clear answers. And he's, uh, he's totally okay with that. Um, basically, I think he, he, but he sort of asserts these things as almost like brute facts, theologically. I know these things are true theologically, but I, I, and I have different theories as to where this came about in the evolutionary biological process, but I can't possibly know it. Now, I mean, is that unfair, Daniel Lisa? If so, please, if you're, you have total right to say so. So, sorry, let me try to understand. Can you repeat that again? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. So he said he says, um, for example, um, <clears throat> that despite our creaturely limits of understanding fully their entrance into the world, we do know that the only creatures. Or, or uh, we are the only creatures who have been made in the creator's image. We're the only creatures who have sinned, and we are all in need of a savior. Now, I think that's true, and I think you could observe that. You know, I think you could look out into the world and say, well, chimpanzees don't sin. They don't need a savior, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so maybe he's just looking at observation and using that as kind of a point of reference. But um, for me, I don't know... <laughs> I don't know. Here's what I don't. Let me put it in my own words. I don't know if evolution is the case. I don't think there is any way to know how our chief theological problem and solution came about or was resolved. I mean, I guess you could say it was resolved with the death of Christ. But um, yeah, I get what you're saying now. Right. So because on 157, he he flat out states, I don't believe in the traditional doctrine of original sin because I recognize that an ancient scientific element has been conflated with a message of faith, but I do believe in sin. So right. He, you're right. He's, he's drawn the line in the sand for himself, but that's just an opinion of his. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I think pastor, you keep referencing the second book. I think this is where Swaminas does a better job. A better job. This, this book's kind of, we, 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 yeah, we, we, you get to the end and it's not really satisfying uh, and you kind of start disagreeing with some of the things that he's, some conclusions he's reaching. But I think Smamadas picks up from there and does a much better job kind of tying in the theology and, and showing where, where science and theology really, you know, they try to talk about the other, the other parts turf and they don't do a good job of it, you know, and he tries to kind of separate those two. Yeah. And his yeah. goal with this book is to make room for people to have a discussion about evolution, right? He wants to show, if you don't believe in evolution, let's go over some of the evidence. And, you know, in the topic of theology, he doesn't do as good of a job. You know, that's not his, his primary goal to maybe reconcile. Like he's saying, we don't have to reconcile them, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, Whereas Swamidas, I know, did a lot of work with uh, theologians and he, and I think right. maybe that benefited his book. Yeah, he might have worked, collaborated with more people than yeah. um, Lemero did. Swamidas, I know he, he went to uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Seminary, and they would hold to 6,000-year-old earth and all that. So I know that he did study with them and talk with them and hear their perspective. And the LCMS in particular emphasizes, and this gets to the last section of this book maybe we, we would want to talk about, but the sin-death problem. Um, which is to say that the, the reason the LCMS is so against an old earth is because they, they would say that there is no death in the world until Adam and Eve fall into sin. 
And you simply cannot have an old universe or an old earth without the cycle of life, without, sin, without death. And so then people will say, well, no, Adam and Eve sin led to spiritual death only. But Lamoro says, no, 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 it, it definitely led to physical death. And so if, if the text is very clear that, that you have physical death once Adam and Eve fall into sin, then that means, um, um, that means that either, well, since he doesn't affirm scientific concordism, that's how he takes care of the problem. But basically, he says either then, um, he, basically, that, he basically says, well, we know that there would have been death for a long time. Genesis 1 speaks of physical death. Therefore, something has to give. Uh, and so what has to give um, is that the authors were writing with the information they had. And the information that they had was that the universe wasn't very old, you know, uh, because Moses believed when he wrote the Torah <clears throat> that the genealogies indicated that the universe, that the earth at that time was a few thousand years old, since we're 3,500 years post Moses, you know. Um, so, um, anyway, I, yeah. Is there somewhere in the Bible that refutes evolution? Is there somewhere in the Bible that refutes evolution? Yeah. Why is it like the main argument? Is there somewhere in the Bible that says God created animals just as they are today? And not, is there somewhere in it? I mean, if I was mm -hmm. to create a robot, I would make the programming adaptable mm -hmm. to environments. God, when he made us and animals, he made our cellular programming adaptable to environment. Mm -hmm. Hence, you have different races. If you're on the equator, your skin is darker. If you're up north, it's lighter or down south. Yeah. These are natural adaptations to environment. Right. You can call it evolution. So my, micro, that's like micro evolution, right? Evolution within a species versus macro evolution, which is evolution from species to species. Right. Um, I think that the, the, the thing that evolution has given to the unbelieving world, it, it's, it's, it's explanatory scope and explanatory power, right? So one of the ways that an argument succeeds or fails is if it has sufficient explanatory scope and power to, to give evidence or support for the argument. And so evolution answers the question of... Um, is the, or is the universe 6,000 years old? Because that's what the Bible seems to say. Well, they have to deny that, you know, in some way, if, if, if they're to deny the Bible. It's kind of an easy target, really. So evolution says, well, we know that it would have taken all these years. Um, it also explains for the diversity of life, not that God was creating. I mean, I will say in terms of what the Bible says about creation, one of Adam's jobs in the garden was to name the animals. Remember, he, he was given that task. Now, after a while, he realized that none of those would be a suitable partner for him. So, hence, you know, Eve was created. Um, so, I don't know that, you know, yes, I mean, I, I definitely agree that God created with adaptability in mind. But I think that's what evolution <coughs> offers. Now, that, that doesn't make it true or untrue. But it just happens to be, I think, a very convenient um, you know, whether it's true or not would, would, would be our interpretation of the facts presented or the evidence presented. But, um, 
but that's what evol that's why evolution is a threat to Christianity because yeah. it is it offers a sufficient sort of worldview and scope for an alternate way of things that do. It's like if you're a defense attorney, right? You not only have to try to come against the prosecution's evidence, you should really offer an alternate explanation, right? Well, OJ actually couldn't have done it because he was, you know, da 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 at such and such a time or whatever the case may be. Um, the gloves don't fit. Glove didn't fit. <clears throat> Never mind, he was wearing a latex glove underneath it, which, yeah. okay, okay. Anyway, but I don't know, Danny and Lisa, if you're going to come, or Craig, in the, yeah, yeah. Is the only movement of evolution environment like like is? I don't know. Do you? Well, what is this question? Craig said, "Is the only uh, reason, I guess, or I don't know, engine behind evolution the environment?" Um, the environment puts pressure, Vincent. Sorry, the environment puts pressure on a species to adapt. Or, you know, like, like the, the, the fittest survive type of thing, right? So the environment, yeah, you, without a specific environment, you don't have pressure. So um, you don't expect something to change that doesn't need to, right? Last word. I, I realized I didn't put the bulletin on the website, and I have to do that right now. So quick, quickly, last word, or anyone? No? Okay. Yeah. 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 So it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, as I talked about last time, and I mentioned the book, um, that's on create evolution does not explain origins. It, 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 and, and that is something that people need to really understand. But okay, Chris, quickly. Uh, I just want to, you're absolutely right on that. But um, the point is, um, evolution. Um, okay. Sorry, I, well, I, it's my point. I, my fault. I rushed us. Um, any any last word, Daniel or Lisa? I I, I don't want to speak, uh, you know, out of turn. No, I agree. I agree with your point that people you can use evolution as an excuse to look no further if they you know if they don't want to. But the fact is that there are people who are scientists who believe in evolution who are you know who have faith who are believers, and so that's the argument against like pe people are going to stop searching. It's a will. It's a thing of the will. Like yeah, there are people who are evolutionary who are evolutionists who right. don't God, but, um, Un unbelief is fundamentally a moral problem. Always remember that in your apologetics and your conversations with people, unbelief is a moral problem. Maybe problem in the right word deficiency. I don't know what you'd call it. It's an act of rebellion. It's not that there's insufficient evidence. The evidence is all around us, but people can find whatever evidence they want to believe what they want in their rebellion. Okay. Yeah. But I'm so short on time. Let's go. Let's uh, say, say a word of prayer and then go to worship. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, each day that we were made. Uh, we were made to praise you. Give us your spirit that uh, our hearts would always desire to praise you um, every day and for the rest of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much.